0: A Living History production.
1: I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. I'm Peter Hart, and I'm with Gary Bain. Gary, how are you feeling today?
0: I'm I'm good today, Peter. We're, we're moving into autumn and winter, so... Uh, dressed a little differently to, to how you normally see me.
1: Yeah, indeed. You know, I, I personally find those frilly dresses a little off-putting, so I'm quite glad you've gone into this uh, uh, sort of, uh, well, what, what do you call it? Those long midi dresses we used to them in the 1970s, and it covers more of your legs. It's always a blessing.
0: I wouldn't know I'm too young.
1: Of course you are. Of course you are. Now uh, today, today's topic is well, it, it's uh, it's it, it, it's this time of year we think about Armistice, uh, but this this podcast isn't about the Armistice, is it? This is, but it follows up from it and it, it's connected to it. Uh, well, you you uh, you deployed your O level French, didn't you, on this one?
0: Yeah, we're going to call this one Après la guerre.
1: Ooh, after the war.
0: <laughs> after the war. Mm. And it marks, you know, it, it marks a number of things that are around uh, the Armistice Day and beyond, uh, from the perspective of individual soldiers. Once again,
1: brilliant! I'm looking forward to it already. Now, uh, so so let's start. Uh, um, well, let's let's first set the scene. Uh, so we'll have a quote from uh, a soldier on the morning of the 11th of November, waiting for uh, 11th, uh, 11th of the 11th, 11th. That sort of, you know, uh, there he is. Um, and he—he uh, he, this is uh, Corporal Charles Hennessy of the Second Fifteenth uh, Civil Service Rifles, London Regiment, and uh, they were—they uh, they had the prospect of making an attack over the the River Scheldt. Uh, do you think they were looking forward to that, Gary?
0: No. And Corporal Hennessy says, "There came a silence which hadn't been experienced for four long years. We had a tremendous feeling of relief at the thought that we had come through alive." and would in due course return to blighty
1: now i think we should sing this next bit together we've rehearsed this three or four times so it can't go wrong so uh, uh on the count of four gary one two three four when, when this bloody war is
0: over oh how happy i shall be when Get my civvy clothes yeah. on! No. no more soldiering for me! Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure we should have done it as 90 <laughs> year olds, but uh, <laughs> well. <laughs> so, what else did you go to say? He says we never sang the above ditty joyously, because so far as we could see, the war was never going to end. It was sung only on those occasions when, as a small carrying party, for example, we waited at some dreary ration dump to collect rations and take them up the line. Or, after having drunk more than enough von Blanc, we sat in some estaminé, feeling doleful. And now, to our great surprise and joy, it was Après la Guerre. Cool. Now,
1: the, the big question for... I mean, there's millions of men under arms. And the big question for them is, what's going to happen next? And this is a brilliant... I've I've used this quote in lots of things. It's by Captain Eric Bird of the 2nd Machine Gun Battalion. Uh, So you're going to be him, aren't you, again, Gary? Working you hard.
0: You are. Captain Eric Bird says, A clear vision of the future suddenly came to me. I said, do you realise that we shall probably live to be old men? For years we'd been accustomed to look no farther than the events of the next day or two to the next meal, the next rest and occasionally the next leave. There were no personal responsibilities, no striving to hold down a job, no income tax, no bills, no dependents to feed. The army paid us however well or ill we did our jobs, fed us regularly, nursed us when we were ill, supplied us with equipment, moved us about and buried us when we died. Our sole responsibility was fighting. Now, in a few months' time, this tremendously organised backing would be no longer behind us. We should have to fend for ourselves as individuals in a hard world.
1: And never has. And it's, 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 it's interesting that it is an ex-soldier who used to often, in, in a t- TV programme he did called, um, uh, called Q, I think it was, Spike Milligan. And one of his big things was: you know, what are we going to do, do next? Now? What are we going to do now? What are we going to do, do now? You can't remember nothing, you. <laughs> what are we going to do next? Now. Next. This could go for hours, so we'll just cut on from that and go. So it's a sort of nearly universal refrain, isn't it? But, uh, but you can't just drop military service at will, although you did, Gary. Uh, (laughs) it's not a peaceful world is it and there's a lot there's a lot of things going on perhaps we'll we'll, perhaps we'll go through them so 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 what what calls are there on the army Gary
0: give us some well there's there's the obvious occupation of Germany yeah you know the the people forget that uh, whilst the German army did withdraw um both the French and the British occupied large areas of, of German territory, and
1: the American. They, yeah, they occupied the the whole of the Rhineland, didn't they? Uh, and uh, enclaves round key bridgeheads uh, such as Cologne. Uh, so that's a bit—that is a huge commitment, isn't it? That, that's probably bigger than the pre-war army. <laughs> so what else they got to do?
0: Well, no, it, there's also from uh, uh, from the east the the Bolshevik threat um, as it was perceived. Oh yes, I think the word perceived is important there, isn't it? Yeah.
1: But it, nevertheless, we have got troops. Uh, we've got the Novorossi thing. We've got the uh, Baku expedition. We've got expeditions here, there and everywhere. It is another commitment. And we've got our BDI on on the, the, the Soviet threat. Yeah, and, it... and,
0: as, and as we've discussed previously, there was an army of occupation in Turkey. Um, you know, we re-landed uh, in Gallipoli, in all the places that we'd failed to... Uh, <laughs> Uh, to, to gain victory in 1915, and there was an army of occupation in Turkey too. Yeah,
1: uh, Constantinople, Istanbul was occupied, and, but there was a, a, a couple of divisions, British and French divisions, uh, around Kilia Bay, which is uh, which is on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Uh, now, uh, what was the British Empire? Could that be left to it? I mean, you wouldn't need a garrison to keep... Uh, I mean, our, our, our then-subjects surely loved the British all around the world. They, they would never want to in any way gain their independence, would they?
0: No, and of course uh, the, the structure <laughs> of the, the the british army pre war had been home battalions and battalions for exactly that for uh, maintaining the empire, and that had to continue
1: they have to keep an eye on their empire whether whether that 's right or wrong they're, 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 uh, and, and you could say the twentieth century is, is is almost the giving up of the empire, but sometimes there was uh, they, they they needed to Well, they didn't, whether they needed to or not. They had uh, a garrison to enforce British rule. Uh, Now, uh, the the one that really concerns us most here, though, isn't it, Gary? Is uh, the occupation of Germany? Uh, And under the Armistice Agreement, the the German forces had to (laughs) had to evacuate occupied France and Belgium within fifteen days, falling back beyond the Rhine uh, within sixteen days. So, within basically four four weeks, they've got to be. The other side of the Rhine. I that's right through. That's through a substantial part of Germany, um, and and uh, behind them would advance the British uh, uh, and and the French uh, in other parts. Now the British were wondering what what uh, what was going to meet them when they got to Germany, and in in the officers' mess that. There is a class structure in the British Army, a very strong class structure. Yes, there were loads of officers who, uh, who were working class lads, uh, clerks and things who'd been promoted, sergeants who'd been promoted for competence, but still there is a class element, certainly in the Welsh Guards. And here we have Major Charles Dudley Ward, who said, What I fear is German propaganda amongst our troops, infinitely worse than riots and street fighting. The men hate the Han now, but if he gives in peace with, if he lives in peace with them, that hatred may give way to tolerance, and so to friendliness and absorb absorption of revolutionary doctrine, discontent and trouble. I notice that Ward gradually drifted to blood knock. <laughs> I,
0: I, I take it, Dudley Ward was Welsh.
1: <laughs> no. He bloody wasn't Welsh, and hardly any of them are. Uh, anyway, the, the British Advance Guard is the 1st Cavalry Division, and they and they get to the German border 1st of December, and three days later, the infantry of the 29th Division, they get to the frontier. Um, it's a bit of an anticlimax in some way when they get into Germany, isn't it? Uh, because when they get there, the Germans, in all our... Pro- and, and our media, then and now, is full of propaganda, And the Germans were conceived as monsters, Uh, were they? And you're going to be Private Norman Cliff. Now, he's a wonderful character. He's first grenadier guards. Come on then, what what, what does he find when he gets to Cologne?
0: The people of Cologne welcomed us as rescuers from anarchy. It was a city of hunger and misery. One felt ashamed to see the damage to the lovely cathedral and even more ashamed to walk about well-fed while children begged for food. We were met not with hatred, but with fear, and offered friendly hospitality that was not without a tinge of not-so-admirable subservience. Despite their pitiable circumstances, lowly citizens invited us into their homes and pressed us to share their meagre fare, and we were at once aware that the Huns were not such bestial monsters as we had been led to believe. But human beings sharing the same sufferings and decent feelings as ourselves. I'm not sure, you've got decent feelings, Kerry. I've got decent feelings for you, Pete.
1: Oh. <laughs> Anyway, the, so the British moved beyond. So they have bridgeheads over the Rhine. And the clone is the the main British one. The, 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 I think there's another one, I can't remember what it's called. And they put a, a basic defence works around that, so digging in a few trenches, outposts. Uh, there's a six mile, uh, there's a perimeter, and then there's a six mile neutral zone. This is a, a proper uh, defended
0: locality. Yeah, because at this point there is no peace, is there?
1: Now, uh, what what do you think the Germans are afraid of? Do, do you think why well, do you think they're so subservient to the British? What could they fear more than the British?
0: Well, they're they're going to have an eye to the east and what's happened in Russia. Um, they're they're very very concerned about Bolshevik uprising and uh, and the damage that that could do. And what they wanted is some sort of normality. So they weren't looking forward to a communist utopia. Um, I'm not sure that you would call it a. Perhaps a Nirvana would be a better word, Pete. But uh, no, they weren't looking forward to that. They wanted to go back to normal,
1: and that—that that, that after a war, I think that's that's human nature, isn't it? To try. Well, after COVID, what do people most want after COVID? Do they want a big change? Do we want a communist revolution in Britain to uh, get our own back on the government?
0: Yes. No,
1: no, Karen, We. Don't, that's not the point. Of, My point's completely ruined. Or do you want things to return to normal?
0: Oh, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, normal.
1: Thank you, Gary.
0: (laughs) And then a communist (laughs) uprising.
1: Yes! I'll join you in... Well, can we have wishy-washy mild socialism? Yeah, that'll do. with a a bit of capitalism on Saturday and Sunday. Um, So, um, now, now billeting. uh, Where are all these troops going to stay? Well, any suitable building, barracks, public buildings, factories, library, anything. And and here we come back to Private Norman Cliff, played by you. Now, this is one of the greatest quotes, in my view, of all time. Um, And he is absolutely outraged by what occurs during a royal visit. Now... Did you ever have a royal visit when you were serving in the army?
0: Yeah, I think we did,
1: yeah. And were you, uh, as a, yeah, the pride
0: of the regiment, were you thrust to the fore? No, I was told in no uncertain terms to keep my mouth shut.
1: Oh, you were allowed to be seen then? That I was, was allowed it. to be
0: seen, but I wasn't allowed <laughs> to be heard.
1: Yes, if only. Anyway, go,
0: go on, Norman Cliff, do this quote. If you don't
1: enjoy this, there's something wrong with you, chums.
0: No sooner had we settled in than an inspection by the Prince of Wales was arranged... All the usual paraphernalia of a royal occasion went into operation and the pretense was made that the prince would see us engaged in our normal routine. It's
1: like the usual royal visit then, eh?
0: Yeah, everything would have smelt of paint. It fell to the lot of Guardsman Cliff to pose in a state of nature under a shower in a cubicle. (laughs) For an unconscionable time, I shivered in the longest ablution of my life and at length I heard the approach of the royal procession. Believe it or not, His Royal Highness swept past without even a glance at my magnificent physique and I had made a full frontal exposure to no effect. I wiped down hurriedly, relieved but humiliated, and struggled into my uniform, nursing disloyal thoughts of the indifference of noble personages to the higher things of life.
1: I think he must have been a bit like you. <laughs> you must read his book. He is a character. Now, um, the the men were a lot of the men were billeted in uh, hotels, private billets. And Sergeant William Collins. Now, I interviewed him. He, he lived in Houston, Houston area. Uh, he was blind in one eye. He had it. Uh, he was rescuing a woman in nineteen, I think, forty and uh, he lost his eye in a a V2 I think it was incident Uh, but he was uh, billeted in the hamlet of Heppendorf um, and he was pretty content with his lot he said this I was billeted with a small holding farmer, and he had two daughters the elder one was quite friendly as a matter of fact she washed all my smalls for me i must say the young men of heppendorf didn't take very kindly to us one morning we came down and on the river village pump was written a message in german it took four and a half years for the brave british troops to conquer the german army but they conquered the girls of heppendorf in one night was that a good German accent?
0: It was very good.
1: Why are you holding your head and wincing? Anyway, one of the things, I think it, it matters a lot to us, because that's sort of marly funny, lots of German women uh, uh, sleeping with British soldiers. Uh, is, is that funny? Well, we don't think it is, do we, Gary? Because actually, they may have appeared to be amorous, but is there an underlying reason why... why, why, why uh,
0: Yeah, this is a quote by Guardsman Horace Calvert, the Second Grenadier Guards. And he says, it was full of ladies of easy virtue. Sex was freely offered for fruit, tinned fruit, soap, bully beef, or anything in short supply. The naval blockade had done its business without doubt. They hung around the barracks and they'd offer you sex if you could supply them with anything. They were desperate.
1: I think that's the word that matters, isn't it? They're desperate. They've been in a world war. They've been starved for years, a couple of years by this time, and now and now they're they're under occupation. I I, I feel sorry for these people. They're desperate people. It's this is not consensual. No,
0: and and the black market is often black marketeers themselves are often portrayed as sort of jovial chappies. Uh, supplied silk stockings, and the like, and you think of the guy in dad 's army and private walker private walker and it 's not like that at all. people are suffering
1: they are uh, it, uh, sorry i well, 'm laughing because i 've just kicked my coffee over <laughs> with scary fans, of music uh, but we we need to be serious sorry, we need to be serious about it it, it isn 't amusing little sideline is it uh it, it, it's it 's awful. Uh, corrupt and it, it, and a lot of the people in it are really nasty uh Yeah it's criminal. Uh, uh right now um now the other thing that can sometimes annoy the Germans is uh high spirits. <laughs> high spirits can be very annoying. In fact I've noted that sometimes you Gary are irritated by my high spirits. Um, yes. <laughs> what do you mean yes you're <laughs> <laughs> anyway, here's a here, th- this is a, the story of a, a wild officers' mess party that took t- place in the town of Bickendorf, and they're, they're celebrating the Fourth Squadron Australian Flying Corps uh, their departure in March, March 1919. So this is quite late in it, but uh, I, I think the quote gives an idea of why the Germans might be annoyed, but also, and you've got to bear in mind, it's also funny.
0: Second Lieutenant John Blanford, Two Hundred and Six Squadron. The Australians decided to paint Kaiser Bill's gigantic equestrian status nearly opposite our mess with white I
1: think sorry, I've just realised that statue and it's an awful misprint. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Bill's gigantic equestrian equestrian statue nearly opposite our mess with white aircraft fabric paint. The Kaiser's charger, twice as large as life, was a stallion, and the sculptor, with true Teutonic thoroughness, had faithfully reproduced every detail of the animal's anatomy to scale. (laughs) After the Australians had finished the job, the stallion possessed zebra stripes and huge white bollocks. To crown all, literally, the Aussies borrowed our CO's enamel chamber pot and wired it on top of the Kaiser's head, like Queen Victoria. The Germans were definitely not amused when they beheld this ribald spectacle. Next morning,
1: I think that's cracking. But you can see they would be upset. But uh, on the other hand, this is what troops are like. They're, they're, they're going to get—they got drunk. These Australian chaps. No, it's most unlike Australians. Most of the Australians I know are, are, Very are sober. sober, quiet, industrious types. I mean, take Matt mcclack
0: Very quiet and industrious. Quiet, lad,
1: and and industrious. Now, um, so on the whole, there's flare-ups, there's incidents, but generally, I think, do you not think the Germans and British rubbed along... uh, all right, without too much uh, sort of trouble. Uh, the second army was the people who were occupying. They were they were renamed the British Army of the Rhine in April 1919. And uh, there's there's periods of mild tension uh, as they're getting ready for the the the, the sign of the Treaty of Versailles, which brings end to the war on 28th of June 1919. Now um, there's a why might there be a frisson? Well, because the, as you pointed out, Gary, the war wasn't necessarily over, was it? If they if the treaty collapsed.
0: They'd advance into Germany.
1: And then on, uh, now this was, I think, if you look at Facebook, my fifth birthday. On my fifth birthday, 10th of January 1920, I don't remember it, I was very young, five, um, there was another flurry of alarm, because although they'd signed it, it looked like they were going to break some of the terms. And again, there's a, a flurry of uh, alarm, but it all passes away. And the British are there. How long are they there? They're, they're, when do they leave?
0: They're, they're there until 1929, I believe.
1: And uh, are, they, are they really part of Germany or are they set aside?
0: No, they're, they're set aside. Germany's completely destroyed and, and is wrapped with economic struggles, they're, they're mass inflation, uh, everything's in short supply. And, and the British and the French and the Americans are living relatively comfortable lives in, in that period.
1: And it's 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 I, I, you could describe it as a cauldron of hatred, a sort of breeding ground. And you've got all these ex-soldiers from the right and the left, fighting on the streets sometimes, there's communist uprising and there's something else happening. What, what else? Sir? Who else is starting to appear by the end, by the time we leave?
0: Well, you've got Hitler starting to appear on the scene and others, but Hitler and his Nazi party are, are becoming more and more visible at this time. And, and of course, you've got the, the, the push uh, uh, in 1923, I think, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's going on in the background throughout this time, but not in the British area. This is something that's going on uh, elsewhere. And the British, as I say, are aside from this, and, and the French and
0: And there is an argument that they shouldn't have remained aside from all of this and, and watched this going on and perhaps could have done something about it sooner.
1: I have to be honest, I don't know enough about it, but it is a, it's certainly one of those thoughts.
0: Nor do I, but it doesn't stop me saying
1: it. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> I'm tempering, uh, tempering admiration for your thoughts with uh, historianly caution, because I don't know what the bloody hell I'm talking about there. Now, um, uh, do you you think the troops uh, were enjoying their time in, uh, well, wherever they are, let's look at Germany, France, Belgium, do you think the troops are enjoying themselves, uh, you know, having a nice rest or do you think they want to get home?
0: No. Firstly, they'll be bored. Secondly, they will want to get home. The, the, <laughs> the war gave them a purpose, and that purpose isn't there anymore.
1: Now, uh, this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cuthbert Headlam, He's a training branch of GHQ, uh, and 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 he said, and he sort of he's a knob in in many ways uh, of, of the uh, you know, uh, and he says this. Everything is as dull as ditch water and I can see that it is going to be difficult to keep the army, officers and men, amused and happy if this interregnum lasts very long. It's all very well soldiering when a war is in progress and you feel that your presence is essential to victory. But quite another thing, being obliged to hang about in a foreign country, which is getting a bit tired of you, uh, when someone else is at home trying to get home hold of your job now this is the thing isn't it because back home what's happening to your jobs you're not really a soldier are you you're not a regular soldier well most of them aren't what's going to happen when they get home what, what what are they going to do now most of the men do you know what i think they show an amazing tolerance what do you think
0: no i think so and corporal charles hennessy he's a uh,
1: chap with the first quote isn't he
0: he's the one with the first quote and he goes on to say We soon began to speculate as to how long it was likely to be before we got home and into our civvy clothes. As individuals, we were quite ready to go home at once, but we appreciated that some time must elapse before we could all hope to be back in civilian life. In the meantime, we began to feel all dressed up with nowhere to go. In other words, that we were now neither soldiers nor civilians.
1: Uh, uh, That's a good point. So I think uh, Headlam's showing an understanding of uh, the problems, and I think Hennessy, from his side, is showing an understanding as well. It doesn't mean that there isn't a great demand to go home. Now... uh, one job that is often forgotten, and uh, I believe uh, one of our great friends, uh, Rob Thompson, has done a lot of work on this, is, is that of salvage, of trying to trying to clear up the battlefield, get rid of the battle battlefield debris. Now, it's bloody dangerous at times, and this is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Banks of the 10th Essex Regiment. Now, I'm sure, as an officer of the Essex Regiment, he has a, an Essex accent, so I will now attempt an Essex accent. <laughs> oh, dear. Call blimey! Instead of garnering the, the, the Australian, <laughs> instead of garnering the fruits of victory in Rhineland, we were set to gather in the rusty aftermath of war, which abounded on the fields of combat. Miles and miles of barbed wire we must have reeled in. Hundreds and hundreds of tin hats, Bush and British, were picked up. And bombs, rifles, shells, guns, aeroplanes, ammunition boxes, derelict wagons, loads of timber, and. Every conceivable form of wall material accumulated pyramid-like in monumental mounds along the sides of the roadways. The energy we expended on the new task in the first few weeks was colossal. But that machinery for getting the stuff away to bloody, not conspicuously adequate. He means it bloody was in, in inadequate. Well, that's a posh way of putting it. And gradually it began to dawn on the consciousness of the sh- soldier man that there was scant chance of much of the mouldering stuff we'd collected, ever seeing the white cliffs of old England. In other words, they're mounding all this stuff, gathering it up, and then they realise, why? What's happening to
0: it? Lieutenant Colonel.
1: Right. Now, you're going to be, and this bloke is posh, and he's also author of uh, a brilliant uh, book, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Roland Fielding. Now, you probably think that's a misprint, the way he spelt his name, but he just couldn't spell his name. He's from some sort of weird family. They must have been super posh. He spells it F E I. Uh, L-D-I-N-G, and he's also 1st 15th Civil Service Rifles. Uh, is that the same? No, it's... Uh, it's a the London the, Regiment. That's a London Regiment, but that uh, Hennessy was the 2nd 15th Civil Service Regiment, so similar but not the same. So what does uh, Fielding have to say? I like this quote, actually.
0: Well, he, he's reluctantly um, persuaded into taking an American army doctor around the old quinchy, loose trenches, and um, he recounts this story. And and this, this sort of resonates with, with modern battlefield visitors as well. He says... How much right has a mere sightseer to souvenirs? It is horrifying to see this sacred ground desecrated in this way, and still more so to think of what will happen when the cheap tripper is let loose. That's you! Amongst others. Uh, with his spit, he will saturate the ground that has been soaked with the blood of our soldiers. This particular man not knowing what he was doing, would pick up a bone and would call out, oh look, a human tibia. It is the way of the world, no doubt, but I pray I may see no more of it. I know that these things will be collected and hoarded, and no doubt boasted of by tourists, things that no one who has fought would have in his possession.
1: Now this rings down across the centuries, doesn't it? Well, a century, because this is a real condemnation of not just us, as battlefield uh, hopefully well we are tourists uh, it does ring down about people picking things up taking it home collecting things that they don't they haven't earned uh, it's worth thinking about what he's just said now the the, the story goes on because he's taking this doctor around that the the thing and, and and then there's a story that also rings down across the centuries as a warning century
0: Yeah I mean things that we would regard as highly dangerous and irresponsible and uh, uh, Fielding goes on to say before we left I thought I would give our visitor a respectable souvenir.
1: He's mad isn't he the next phrase shows that he's mad or he doesn't like
0: the doctor Hmm. and picked up a German hand grenade it had been lying about so long that I did not think it could possibly have any sting left however I pulled the safety cord to make sure, Ah. and immediately there followed a hissing sound. I called to the two doctors to take cover and threw the bomb, which a second or two later went off with a loud explosion. A splinter drew a spot of blood from one of our visitor's hands, so he actually threw it in their direction then, from the sound of it, at which he said jokingly, anyway, I shall be able to tell them at home that I've had a wound. They're, they're looking. Why? Why were they looking? Because they're, they're... well, people are still injured, and in fact, there were recently some deaths in Belgium about two or three years ago uh, of some workmen where they they de- discovered some uh, Mills bombs and uh, and they went off, and and I think one was killed and two were severely injured.
1: So. Uh, there you go now uh, one thing that uh, i mean there's a huge gap i mean i noticed that in my notes i put a uh, lacunae in the gap the lives of times that's because somebody said something rude about me and use that word I thought I'd use it back just to show I knew what it meant up I'm not sure it's a good idea anyway they wanted a program of mass education for the men now this is easy to think of but it's difficult to deliver after a war when you're not really lined up for it and most of the units they don't have they don't have enough teachers qualified teachers and people who can't teach can't teach as the people listening to this will be thinking uh that they don't have Proper classrooms, they don't have textbooks, writing paper, they haven't got an agreed syllabus. And remember, you do need some sort of syllabus. And the the results could be fast gone. This is uh, our Essex uh, soldier again, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Banks. And he says this It was greatly greatly a case for brickmaking with that straw. One remembers the momentous day when the first educational uh, material for the brigade arrived. Three! Three, Gary, 12-inch rulers for 3,000 men. Yet more humorous was the arrival of one typewriter keyboard for the instruction of the division in typing. 10,000 men spread over 20 miles of
0: countryside. I'm speechless.
1: Now, they improvise, they try their best, they make some progress and... Would you imagine it was an even progress across the army? Would every unit try the same, do you think? No. Thank you.
0: (laughs) No. I mean, you get some that would be more enthusiastic than others. Is that better? Uh, And and some would just, you know, some have a thirst for education, don't they? Some don't. Do you think it did any harm? No, I don't think it does any harm, but I'm not sure they should have been concentrating on that. Education is never wasted, Peter. Look, look at me.
1: Yes, look at me. I think there's different... With you, a bit of more education might have helped earlier. <laughs> uh, and with
0: me, I'm not sure... Yeah, but all they're, all they're really interested in I'll show you is, my school reports before we go.
1: Heart has failed to benefit from the sixth form experience.
0: <laughs> all they are really interested in, Peter, is demobilisation. They want to go home
1: that's that's all that they want and um, what they want to be free don't they? They they, they 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 want to be free of the petty restrictions of army life you wanted to be free of the petty restrictions of army life and the army wanted to be free of you now uh, this is lieutenant colonel roland fielding again and and he really puts it well
0: the raging desire still continues to be demobilized quickly nevertheless i feel pretty sure that for many there will be pathetic disillusionment. In the trenches the troops have had plenty of time for thought and there has grown up in their minds a heavenly picture of an England which does not exist and never did exist and never will exist so long as men are human.
1: I really like that because we have this image that even today people are always going about the past is a and it's some golden era and it's is it at the moment it's the 1950s everything was lovely in the 1950s well it wasn't and there never has been a golden past now however uh, and field it uh, who to agree with him. good old private norman cliff of the first grenadier guards and you're going to do this one as well you've got a lot to do at the moment
0: we were all impatient to be freed from regimentation to return home to be free individuals again to recover our dignity as human beings, to cast off uniforms, to be done with parades and bull, to cease to be bawled at and ordered about, to get away from all the noise of guns and drums and bugles and barking NCOs, to possess our own souls and to be masters of our own lives. What unimaginably heavenly bliss awaited us, once we could escape from this stifling machine. Oh, I'm not
1: sure about that. Now, we've got another bit of singing coming up here, because uh, I think this is a, a poem written by Major Edward De Steen of the Machine Gun Corps. Now uh, He may call it a poem. I call it a bit of a rip-off, because uh, as we sing it to the original song, let's do it again, Gary. Uh, Two feet. when
0: I pull on my CVs,
1: Oh, how happy I shall be! To hear no more the cannon roar And to know that I am free Uh, what a rip-off of that other pair. Poets are terrible, aren't they? They've just got no conscience.
0: It sounds like the second verse of the previous one, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. Right, now, uh, now demobilisation, it's a huge undertaking. Is it easy? Is it easy? I mean, it had gone from, what, 400,000, that's a maximum pre-war, uh, it's more like 250,000, but it's all a TA as well, to 3,800,000, and that's going to go back to... 300,000 or whatever. How are they going to do that without triggering civil and industrial chaos? And how difficult is it going to be? Um, you know, they've given assurances. Employers have promised jobs back. Government promised people could have their jobs back. The men are bound to worry, though. Best will in the world. There's always going to be injustices. There's going to be winners. There's going to be losers. And then there's going to be the, the, trouble. Uh, whatever they do as to the order and manner of demobilization. And the government do a system of piecemeal demobilisation and, and they give priority to pivotal men who'd worked in processions essential to get the British economy going together. Professions.
0: The professions, yeah. yeah. They didn't work in processions. They might have done. They might have done. They might have done, they, they might have done the odd procession.
1: Yeah. Now Give me a bit of leeway, Gary. Uh, anyway, um, so, 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 so so what's the... the, the, the let's, let's go through. So what, what, what's first then?
0: Uh, So the battalions would uh, gradually be reduced to a car with the first go being the civil servants, the people who are actually going to do the demobilising, referred to as demobilisers. Did you think of that? Uh, No, I didn't think of that. So, but you need somebody to administer it, and that that seems entirely reasonable to me at this point.
1: Well, somebody has to run a scheme. Now, the next the the, the priority groups are coal miners. Yep, yeah, well, I can yep. see yep. that. that. Uh, They've been called up in uh, early nineteen eighteen. G- g- uh, agricultural workers. Yeah, yep. got to yep. feed people. Seamen
0: and fishermen. Oh, <laughs> uh,
1: shipbuilders.
0: Yeah, yeah, building yeah. trades. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Students. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. And teachers, yep. Oh, no, well, well, even
0: that's a bit debatable, yep. I think.
1: But the, then, the, then the early volunteers would be released uh, and the conscripts were supposed to be at the back of the queue. Uh, regular soldiers would have to complete their, uh, their uh, period of service. Um, and the, in all, I, I mean, 17,000 soldiers, I reckon, would be demobilised a day from the Western Front. Uh, And a soldier would be sent back to a core concentration camp, then a series of staging camps, an embarkation camp, a disembarkation camp, and finally a dispersal camp. So apparently these soldiers were as camp as hell.
0: (laughs) Oh dear. Now these camps, finally the dispersal camps, were were hopefully really close to their home. Yeah. The, The idea was to get them to be close. Not sure whether that. I would think happen. you should have gone down the route of camp coffee, to be honest, rather than the, the, the route apologize. you chose. I apologise
1: unreservedly. Uh, now, uh, it's a it's a mixture of pragmatism and principle, isn't it? Really, this. Uh, it's, um, uh, do you think it? Uh, do you think it, it? Do you think it worked?
0: Well, I should imagine there's a few people like I would have done, be sat at the sidelines thinking, "Well, hang on a minute, what about me? Why am I not going?" I shouldn't imagine it satisfied anybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, because well, the trouble is the key industrial workers they'd they're, they're often only just as I mentioned been conscripted so what's happening is they're combed out as they call it
0: this was because of the, the difficulties in 1918 you mean the German spring Offensives? yeah and, and the manpower shortage there was a, a yeah. genuine manpower shortage and,
1: and, and now they're going first and can you imagine if you volunteered in oh, hang that's on that's fair um.
0: enough <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what you'd say
0: is it yeah I'll say that's alright they've only been here two months I've been here four years and there's
1: Outbreaks of ill-discipline which shaded into outright mutiny. Uh, that can be over-exaggerated. Some of the base camps, disturbances in southern England, troops on leave having to go back to the front. Uh, this is in January in particular, 1919. Uh, there was a, a big disturbance at Victoria Station. Uh, this is all going on, uh, protest strikes, uh, and uh, on the of January, the government respond. Now, what, how does it change? So what, 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 what's the priority now?
0: Well, so the first priority is those men that had enlisted before the introduction of conscription in 1916. Um, there was some exceptions to that. There were compassionate cases. Uh, if you have got, for example, three or more wound stripes, those who were over 41 years I'm old. i clear. Uh, there was uh, a limited number of those pivotal men as they were described of 250,000. And that included those that were were needed to administer the system.
1: Well, that that is sensible. you you you, we both agree with that. Yeah, that, that is sensible. Yeah. Uh, and a new act brought in, <laughs> it allowed compulsory military service uh, to, to be extended till 1920. That's, I could see why they've done that. That's just keeping it going. Uh, uh, but they do something else. What do they do to try and cheer up the men? What do men like?
0: Hurrah! They doubled the pay rates. Yeah.
1: Yes! And in total, I think this works, uh, the the trouble dies down. And there's the odd sporadic outbreak of unrest, but basically... It, they, ca- they calm down, don't they? Everybody, it ebbs away, doesn't it? It does. Uh, now, the Mob, we're going to look at the Mob process because c- um, it's labour intensive and every unit sets up its own in-house organisation. And, and the one that we're going to look at is the 1st 6th Cheshire Regiment where Lance Corporal Walter Williamson runs the scheme. Uh, and uh, I love the first quote because it just shows that human nature hasn't changed, Gary.
0: Lance Corporal Walter Williamson, 1st 6th Cheshire Regiment. Miners are first priority. I've evidently been misinformed in my early youth when I was taught that Cheshire was an agricultural county, as I was surprised when a call went round the Battalion for Miners, about 50% reported to the MOB office. Then the fun started. When it was explained that they would be put into mines by the government, There was a sudden reduction in the number of miners and the Cheshires reverted to a more agricultural flavour.
1: Now, people like you, that is, Gary. I recognise your type of person. (laughs) You can go home if you're a miner. I'm a miner! (laughs) And so's my wife. (laughs) And you have to go down the mine... Hands down. <laughs> the pace of the, the demobilisation gradually occurs, and, and by late January 1990, they're struggling to keep up. Uh, but uh, Williamson and, and his assistant uh, has a well-organised drill, as each victim, as they call them, appeared to be demobilised. He goes through it. So so you've got the next quote. We've got a lot of quotes from Williamson now.
0: Tommy, with half a dozen small forms. Me, with that monumental and now famous form z Ten, which was the dis, uh, dispersal certificate, Tommy snaps at him, number! And I yell, name! And he gets a crit in his neck and, in, and an impediment in his speech, trying to answer us both at once.
1: So they've done that deliberately.
0: <laughs> I can go on filling my forms up from the information I had while I can hear Tommy at it. Have you a pair of socks? Etc. Then a pause. Then the famous question, have you anything wrong with you? Instead of, Do you wish to claim for any physical disability due to your military service? Why
1: do you think, did they ask that of you when you left? (laughs) Have you anything wrong with you other than this list I've got on this letter from your officer?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, Why have they done that? I mean, why why ask have you anything wrong with you instead of do you wish to claim? (laughs) Well,
0: because uh, there would have been some sort of uh, pension or disability allowance associated with a an injury or a long-term illness resulting from their military service
1: so uh, they, they don't want them to complain they so, do not
0: want them to claim
1: now and next morning so they fill the forms and next morning they report for a last time and and here we uh, here we go again and this actually has my famous favorite joke uh So okay. this is uh, mr williamson again
0: i then warn them to get dressed as the co will come and say a parting word I don't mean that they've forgotten to put their trousers on or anything like that. The weather's a bit too nippy for such forgetfulness. But just to get their equipment on again and button their pockets up. Is that your favourite?
1: Yeah, I just love the idea. Get your trousers on. Trousers
0: on! (laughs) By the time the CO has shaken hands with them all and assured them that they will all want to be back in the army in a month, another allotment comes in for the next day. And
1: it's the same for every... It's just going on in every battalion. Did you want to rejoin the army the next month after you'd left it?
0: No. Oh.
1: Now, uh, so what happens out now? We're going to now follow someone through, and we're going to follow our old favourite, Charles Hennessy, uh, Corporal Charles Hennessy. He's demobbed on the 26th of January 1919, and he's on the cross He's gone through that procedure or something very similar, and now he's on a cross-channel... thing and this is going to feature uh, I'm going to read a a bit of poetry in this because I feel that it needs a serious voice in the middle of it Uh, so go on tell us uh, what's happening they're on the deck they're crossing the channel how do they feel tell us what Charles Hennessy says
0: we took up positions on the deck where in spite of the chilly breeze we were determined to remain so as to catch sight of the English coastline at the earliest possible moment when it at last came into view I thought
1: is it, here? Is it here?
0: <laughs> I thought of the many writers who had described this moment as one which always aroused a feeling of great emotion in the breasts of people who had been long away from their homeland. I thought of the famous lines.
1: Breathes there ever... Sorry, I got it wrong. <laughs> Breathes there a man with a soul so dead who never to himself has said, This is my own, my native land. Uh, Beautifully read, except for the mistake, I thought.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And they suddenly took on a meaning which I'd never before fully appreciated.
1: And then suddenly they're back in England, they're, they're, tra- they're coming down the, the gangplank, they're, they're back in England, and uh, he's going to Dover, a camp near Dover, uh, and uh, he, he carries on the tale of what happens to him. It's good, this, for just letting people know what it's like.
0: Little time was wasted before the work of converting us from soldiers to civilians began. First of all, we were required to and in these, rifle, hand and in, in rifle. our rifles and equipment, which was indeed a moment to remember. We'd carried these for many weary miles, and they had become almost part of ourselves. So each man made a small ceremony of the handing over and delivered himself of the oath that seemed most appropriate to him.
1: Yes, and when he said oath, I don't think he means, <laughs> I pledge to thee my country, I think he means, I like to get really of do Anyway, uh, he goes on, Uh, they're then trooping from hut to hut, aren't they, this camp, this demob camp. Uh, So many details, anyway, we've got a few of them here. And uh, there's a, a change in tone, isn't there, from the usual bloody army tone?
0: Yeah, Corporal Charles Hennessy says, It seemed to me that we were being dealt with in a very courteous manner, and this we liked. In one hut a padre inquired about our future moral welfare and in another a perfect stranger was desperately anxious to be sure that we had a job to go back to. From each of the huts we emerged with a piece of paper and finally staggered from the last hut with a handful of assorted documents calculated to save us from all possible trouble when we got back into civvies. We'd also been given £2 to show how anxious the authorities were for our immediate needs. Well, I got a further £1 as compensation for not wishing to retain my greatcoat. And one pound eighteen and sixpence in lieu of a reach-me-down demob mob suit.
1: And people often don't realise they got de-mob suits in the First World War as well. Uh, so that, uh, what, what are they leaving the camp as? They're leaving the camp as civilians and they begin their journey home. Um, now... I love this next quote because <clears throat> it's, 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 it's like everything's new but old to them. They're on the train back from Dover. They're on the on route to Victoria, Victoria Station. And it's like a thing of wonder, just the ordinary everyday life as a civilian.
0: Hennessy says, Everyone was thrilled at once more seeing the old familiar layout of an English railway station, WH Smith's bookstall, alongside the ticket collector's box. The refreshment buffet further along, flanked by a parcels and porter's cubby holes. And at the very end of the platform, the station gents.
1: That's been closed on a lot of stations nowadays, especially London Underground stations.
0: There was even the motionless figure of a porter, standing, leaning on the handles of an empty truck, with a facial expression which clearly dared anyone to ask him to do anything.
1: So that hasn't changed. That's not changed at all. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Now, he's been travelling with his mate. It's his best mate, Percy, Ellis, Percy Eels, sorry. No, Els. It's a funny name. Um, and uh, in the hustler-bustler of, of, of Victoria Station, he's saying goodbye. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's quite an emotional moment for him, although he ruins it by remembering what sort of person this Els is. Eels. Els. Eels. Whatever his name is, Eels, we're for a week.
0: Well, it's spelt W-E-L-S, so I think it's Eels. At the barrier were about a dozen elderly ladies, obviously come to welcome the troops home. Hello. <laughs> Their outstretched hands and friendly ah. smiles were more welcome to us than the best brass band in the land. Percy Eels and I got through the barrier at last and found ourselves saying goodbye to each other after being in close contact since 1916. He did his job as a stretcher-bearer with his sleeves rolled up to the elbows and a dirty stub of cigarette in the corner of his mouth, but never failed to cheer his patients up as he cursed them for being silly enough to get in the way of a bullet. I
1: wonder if he was a porter in civilian life. <laughs> cigarette ash all over the wounds. and abuse. Fantastic. Then, then a bus ride home, isn't it? And we even know what bus it is. A number 16? To Kilburn. I... I But it's a bit of an anticlimax when he gets home, the prodigal return, uh, because the rest of his brothers are still away on waters. But this is another lovely bit.
0: When I reached my house, I found my mother and sister there, having no idea that I was about to descend on them at that particular time. After a hot meal and a rest, then a bath, I felt much better. And since I had previously flung my uniform, underclothing and socks into the garden to be burnt on the morrow, I really began to feel myself a civilian again.
1: And that's a lovely thing. It's, it's the old thing. Wash them and then burn, burn them. <laughs> uh, Demobilisation would eventually... Uh, the army went from 3,800,000 to just 230,000 by 1922. Now... um. Just a couple of remarks. Uh, The idea of an aristocracy of the trenches was often twinned with the idea that the the shared nobler values of military service could be harnessed to the good of society at all. Now, do you think your uh, your shared military values were valued to the good... Sorry, were harnessed to the good of society when you left the army, Gary?
0: Yes. Hmm.
1: Anyway, Brigadier General Hubert Hart. That's me!
0: Your Uh, father...
1: Hope that no, no relative, he's a New Zealander. Hope that none of our family went to New Zealand for good reason. Hope that some good might come over. He said, I'm going to read it in my voice though. And as Mike Yarwood, the world's worst impressionist, once said, so I, I really empathise with him, this is me. <coughs> in a few days, we'll be taking off these uniforms as we're going to discard with them all that all the khaki has taught us uh, are we going to it's me? I can't it's <laughs> do it to
0: someone else i'll please. do it to someone else
1: <laughs> are we going to discard them with all the, <laughs> the khaki has taught us or are we going to draw from our experiences and utilize the knowledge it has given us in such a way that we will be help with we will help make our glorious country better brighter and a happier place to live in perhaps i should never read anything again Um, anyway this optimism is often overwhelmed by despair so that's an optimistic view but somebody else there's no perfect society and it's never going to be and this is this bloke's an idiot father benedict Williamson, and quite rightly you're playing this part
0: the england to which we have returned is so different from the england of our hopes and dreams and when the boys say to me i'm sorry i came back i would be happier lying under a little white Crossing france what can i say when i know it is true if only the wonderful spirit of the trenches had been brought to england but it has not the world is more sordid and self-seeking than ever before
1: now i think he's at the other end of the spectrum that was a wonderful reading by the way and i felt an urge to take up religion and to, to and that was me that 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 was
0: the real that me. That was the real me. Uh, so there's no brave new world.
1: What sort of problems? Let's look very quickly. We've only got a few moments left. Uh, this is a whole topic on us. What problems have they got? Well, I'll go first. Just lads have gone in as school, boys, and they're now... Officers, some of them are senior NCOs, they've had responsible, they've been trained for nothing but war, and they're not really, and now they're going back to menial jobs, the mundanities of civilian life, very little challenge. Uh, You got any suggestions or problems they might face?
0: Well, if they go back to the jobs they had previously, they're back at the bottom of the pile. So, so they've gone from you know real responsibilities uh, to being uh, the, the lowest of the low in their in their chosen professions.
1: Uh, new generations have stepped in their place because not everyone is called up. There's people stayed behind for good reason often, but they've stayed behind. There's there's then there's the younger people coming through that. They've got the right to go back at their pre-enlistment positions yet for the many that's just not really an option is it? If you've been a, a company sergeant major and you're told to go back to be a clerk in a post office that's not so great is it?
0: And let's not forget that the economies are absolute, absolutely on the floor. They've been devastated by the war uh, and, and, it, and that's, a, you know, that's a global position. They've got to suffer the after, the after effects of, of dreadful wounds and mental trauma um, you know, we'd now call that post-traumatic stress, and and they're having to carry all of that at the same time as having to try to return to their quote normal lives.
1: And then and then there's the the, the other sort of thing they've got to go back to to re-establish normal relationships. They've, they've got they've got wives, families, girlfriends, uh, workmates who haven't gone to war, who perhaps been promoted beyond them. All these relationships are going to be incredibly different. And and there's one thing underline everything that they have to do what is one thing that's going to stay with them for the rest of their lives
0: well they're going to have to try to bury some of the memories that they have some of the things they've seen experienced uh, and people are going to be asking them about it uh, and they're, they're not going to want to, to to talk about that and and it you know they could be corrupted by what they've experienced
1: Well, just the violence.
0: Violence and death being a normal part of their everyday experience.
1: And with post-traumatic stress, I'm not saying this happened to everyone, but uh, domestic violence soars in the years after wars because people are stressed and and then their financial problems, there's so many problems facing and no one seems to care, do they?
0: Yeah, let's face this, you know, a land fit for heroes when, frankly, nobody seemed to care one jot about the soldiers returning, their welfare, and other arms, you know, the, the RAF as was then, and of course the, the Navy, Navy yeah. uh, and, and, you know, for, for some people, getting, getting the help that they needed was the greatest struggle that they'd faced, you know, greater still than what they'd faced in the trenches.
1: And one thing I, I do want to say that people say, do they talk about it? And families often say, oh, okay, he never talked about it. There's two reasons for that. One is what we call the Uncle Albert, which is they do talk about it, but no one shows any interest. So they stop talking about it in the family. Sometimes it's too awful. They don't want to shock the family. They, 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 there's reasons. Where do they talk about it? Because they do talk about it. Not just a stupid oral historian 60 years later, but they talk about it somewhere. Where is it?
0: Well, they talk in, in pubs and clubs. Uh, they talk with their comrades, you know, people that had the same experience. That understand. Yeah. Uh,
1: the British Legion, all that sort of thing gathering for armistice parades, it's reunions in one sense of the word. Now, uh, the last thing I'd say is if you ever want to hear what they think, then read their letters, read their diaries, uh, listen to their tapes, uh, and then you can still hear that this, this, this generation that suffered so much, they're, they're still there uh, in that way uh, through institutions like the War Museum and the Australian War Memor- uh, Memorial, uh, which is their version.
0: A lot of which is available online.
1: Well, because they're better organized, yes. Australians do have a fantastic collection of life. Well, Gary, this has been—it's uh, been a roller coaster this one, uh, of humour um, and, and finishing up on a, a quite sad note. But uh, thank you very much for joining me in my bijou home.
0: Thanks, Pete. See you next time. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.